tuned in to the Community Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I have been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Jackie Rand. Dr. Rand is the Executive Director and Chief Scientist at the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation, Emeritus Professor of Companion Animal Health, School of Veterinary Science at the University of Queensland. She's the Emeritus Professor. Rand graduated with a Bachelor of Veterinary Science from Melbourne University in 1975 and is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Medicine and Internal Medicine. She was appointed Professor of Companion Animal Health at the University of Queensland in 2001. And while at UQ taught, amongst other things, urban animal management. Oh boy, that sounds like a wonderful course. I would love that. She retired at the end of 2015 to head the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation, which is dedicated to saving pets' lives through research, education, and advocacy. She has published over 117 journal articles, authored 43 book chapters, and is author or editor of three books. Currently, she is involved in research programs aimed at strategies to achieve zero euthanasia of healthy and treatable dogs and cats in shelters and pounds, and in the last six years has published 21 papers in this area. A key focus of her research is the Australian Community Cat Program. Dr. Rand, I would like to welcome you to the show, and thank you so much for joining us from Australia. Thank you very much, Stacey. I have to say, I went to uh, university for urban planning, so that course, Urban Animal Management, just looks phenomenally interesting to me. So thank you for for doing that. It just looks like a great course. But before we jump into the details from your professional uh, experience and the work that you're doing in Australia, if you could share with our listeners, first and foremost, you know, how you became passionate about cats and so interested in community cat programs. Well, Stacey, I guess some, I, as a youngster, I had a, um, a cat, a black cat called Blackie, but I've always kind of had an interest in feline medicine. Um, throughout my career, I did a doctorate in feline neurological disease at the Ontario Veterinary College, and it was actually there that I developed an interest in feline diabetes, which I have spent 30 years researching and publishing in. And back then, we knew not, you know, we didn't know much about cats. They were different from dogs. And I clearly remember one cat that we had in the clinic and we spent uh, several weeks trying to stabilise it and then it was no longer a diabetic. And we sent it home with this bill for 100 blood glucose measurements. And the owner was really nice about it, but he said, did you really need to measure blood glucose that number of times? because it's not diabetic. And back then, we just didn't know the answer. The answer is now, well, the tighter they are controlled, the more likely they are to go into remission. But uh, I had that interest in, in diabetes and I came back to Australia and took up the position at the University of Queensland. And research is about asking a question and answering that to do things differently. And we said, you know, how come cats are type 2 diabetics like humans where genes and obesity are the major issues, but unlike humans, 
90% of them need insulin lifelong and they only lived about 17 months after diagnosis. So we asked, you know, is there a better way to treat them? And I designed a project to test um, a new long-acting insulin that had been just released in a very low-carbohydrate diet and showed we could get them off insulin within about six to eight weeks and get 90% of them off and we more than doubled their lifespan. And that, Stacey, went around the world in four years and changed management of diabetic cats. And it showed me the power of research to get change. And at the same time, I was asked to teach this course in urban animal management. And it was in the final year of a vet course, which is a five-year course at UQ. So I was teaching it to students who just spent four and a half years learning how to diagnose and treat diseases. And I was saying to them, you know, being homeless for a dog or cat kills more of them than any disease that you've just learned about in your last four and a half years. And that was pretty shocking and confronting for some students. But, you know, because I had a research background, I, you know, it was obvious we didn't understand much about the problem. And yet the euthanasia rate at the time for cats in Australia was about 70% as it was in the US. And the two biggest shelters taking in cats were admitting 12 to 16,000 cats and killing 90% of them. And it was having a terrible effect on the mental health of staff. And so, you know, research is about asking the question, can we do things differently to get a better outcome? And it's designing a study to identify better methods and then disseminating that information as we did with the diabetes research by talking at conferences, writing articles, publishing it. So we started off analysing the data for 191,000 cats coming into RSPCA shelters, um, Royal Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals um, in Australia, and found, you know, because we didn't understand where they were coming from, but found that most of them were stray. We also were able to show that mandatory sterilisation didn't lead to more cats being sterilised and that most of the cats were not microchipped, but those that were microchipped, 37% of them, the contact details were all out of date. So it was clear that strategies were needed to decrease intake and to improve return to owner and adoption rates. And at the same time, back in the 70s, uh, well, back in the um, 2014, just you know, more recently, there was data, and a bit before that, data coming out of USA that showed that high-intensity sterilisation programs targeted to the locations of highest intake were really effective in reducing intake and euthanasia. And I guess Julie Levy's, Dr um, Julie Levy's uh, work in this area is so compelling. The problem is that TNRs are legal <laughs> across mm -hmm. Australia. And, for example, the state that I uh, live in, unowned cats are classed as three, four and six restricted matter. They can't be fed, they can't be moved, they can't be rehomed or sold. And in fact, in Brisbane, veterinary practices are being threatened with breaches of the Biosecurity Act if they accept a stray kittens from the public, sterilise them and rehome them at their expense. 
and the CTV cameras in Brisbane that are monitoring colonies and the carers are being routinely fired. They're even given a suspended jail sentence. But I'm never one to let an obstacle get in your way. We found out that there was a legal possibility to get a restricted matter permit for research purposes to allow a research trial of TNR. So I got a steering group together with RSPCA and Animal Welfare League and also Department of Agriculture and Fisheries representatives. We met for about a year and a half. And then I applied for a permit. But they, the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries declined it on the basis that sterilising cats was a biosecurity risk. So we argued that, well, the cats are there now, and uh, Green Cross, which is a big veterinary group in Australia, had very kindly uh, agreed to sterilise 3,000 cats for free for us. And I said to the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries, well, you know, they're not going to kill 3,000 cats. <laughs> it's not very good for their public image. So the cats are either there producing kittens or they're there not producing kittens. What do you want? Well, they turned us down again. So never one to take no for a no. We appealed to the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal and the Executive Director for the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries uh, uh, was representing them. And uh, he then, you know, for the session, mediation session, he had to um, read what we submitted, which was about 700 pages of documentation, including all the research papers that had been published and not just what his policy officer gave him, and they consented to give us a permit. So now we have a permit, we have a good working relationship, and uh, we started the, the project about August last year. Wow, that's fantastic information. And we obviously with COVID hasn't impacted Australia as much. So have you been able to get those surgeries accomplished or have you been put on hold for any part of the year? It's impacted. So this is a big, Stacey, and it, because we have a permit that's a research permit, there's a lot of research around this whole project. It's really aimed at negating all those arguments that, ecologists have and and local government people have about disease spread by cats and numbers of cats and wildlife predation. So some of that's been impacted. We were doing door knocking for community surveys about attitudes of community to cats and what their preferences were for managing cats. And, you know, that was totally stopped with COVID. Uh, and we had to then uh, get a team of volunteers together to do telephone calling and get ethics approval for that change. And we have had a number of lockdowns that have been relatively short in Queensland, luckily, uh, which has meant that we've had to reschedule sessions. So that's, uh, and we've been very lucky that the uh, RSPCA, they've got a, a hospital there and they have been doing, we've been um, uh, sterilizing cats and doing about, we try and do about 50 in a, a session once a week or once every two weeks. But COVID certainly impacted Green Cross and their ability to help us with those 3,000 cats and also lack of veterinarians, which I think, uh, you know, you mentioned is uh, 
also impacting uh, veterinary practices in North America. Before we hit the record button, we were talking a little bit about how you were surveying the public and how you might have had some preconceived notions beforehand and that the information that was coming out of the surveys might be a little bit different. Do you want to share some snippets about that? Yes. So part of the uh, what we wanted to show with this research was that sterilising cats in these low socioeconomic areas led to a stronger bond. And we're, the project uh, involves owned cats, uh, semi-owned cats, those cats that are fed by people who don't perceive that the cat's their property, but they perceive themselves as a guardian, and also unowned cats and colony cats. And what we wanted to show to local governments was that after these cats were sterilised, that people would have a stronger bond with them and they would undertake more uh, care, you know, in inverted commas, um, this responsible uh, cat caring behaviours. And what blew us away when we surveyed these people, um, and about 85% of them are people who just, you know, they perceived they owned the cat but couldn't afford to have it desexed. And, and sorry, I use, I, I'll slip into using desexing, which is what we use, instead of sterilisation. So <laughs> I'll just give you a heads up there. And about uh, 15% of them are these people that, didn't consider the cat their property before they heard about the program, but took were happy to take ownership if they were offered free sterilisation, microchipping, and where relevant to uh, council registration. And what we found is that these people were actually not what we hypothesised would be rather laissez-faire carers of the cats. They were really actually trying to do the best they can with the resources. 90% of them agreed or strongly agreed that the cat helped them through tough times. They were buying them uh, healthcare products, flea control. They were actually trying to keep them on their property, although when we asked them had the cat left the property in the last two weeks, <laughs> they were less successful. Uh, but knowing these, a lot of these people are in rental properties and if you've got a DoorDash a cat. So really um, the strength of the bond with the cat what they were trying to do in terms of helping the cat made us realise that the hypothesis that governments make legislation based on their, their premise that, you know, it's irresponsible cat owners and cat carers that are responsible for the stray cat problem, what it made us realise is that, in fact, the paradigm should be that uh, these people are trying to do the best they can. And if you help them do better, like having the cat sterilised and help them perhaps with strategies to keep a door dash a cat in at least at night with strategic feeding, then, you know, they enacting laws that are sort of mandating doing this don't work. But if you help them, you know, you get a much better outcome. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite... Uh, it was very eye-opening for me. Could your animal welfare organization use a tune-up? Humane Network can help. You can get a free 30-minute consultation to talk through your challenges and get ideas on how your organization can be more successful with less stress. From board development and fundraising to strategic planning and operations, Humane Network has got you covered. 
whether you are a large or small nonprofit or government. It's a live and thriving program led by a certified animal behavior consultant features specially designed training for shelter and clinic staff on enrichment, stress reduction, safe animal handling, and behavior modification. With Humane Network, you receive individualized advice and support customized to meet your organization's unique needs. And Humane Network can lighten your load by taking on fundraising, communications, and other tasks you struggle with. Contact Humane Network today for a free 30-minute consultation. Visit HumaneNetwork.org. That's HumaneNetwork.org. Of course, you know that Dubert is the only software that helps you do transport, foster management, and fundraising all in one place. But did you know that Dubert has powerful e-commerce capabilities to let you sell your organization's products? Forget paying for Shopify or trying to list your items on Facebook. With your Dubert account, you can list your organization's products and even do auctions right from their rescue store module. Dubert manages your orders and all of the money goes directly into your PayPal, making it super easy to manage. Check out the Dubert rescue store functionality today at www.dubert.com where they make animal rescue simple. One of the comments that I still get on quite a regular basis is the comment about how there are so many people out there that don't want to spay or neuter their cats. And I personally don't necessarily agree with that. I feel like if there's an opportunity and a conversation that a majority of the population is going to want to get their cat spayed or neutered. How do you think about that concept? Yes, Stacey, after having worked uh, in the community with boots on the ground, and we've got two community liaison officers part-time who are uh, working there, I think your understanding of it's correct that, you know, these people have got that are in these low socioeconomic areas. And, you know, we're talking about Stacey, in suburbs that we're working in, that 20 to 30% of the people are on their clusters low income, which is a household of 2.4 people living on less than $650 a week. And to have a female cat sterilised, uh, it's 300, It's about $300 in Australia and microchipped. Uh, if it's pregnant, it might be $50 to $100 more vaccination and count the local government registration is a so you know to to vaccinate it uh, sterilize a female can be over four hundred dollars and what we know from our research people are feeding um, and have the need to have on average two cats sterilized so on an income of household income of six hundred less than six hundred and fifty dollars a week how the hell do you afford to have two cats sterilized that might be $800, $900, including local regist- you know, local government registration? And so it's just not a priority, but, you know, they care for the cats. And if you can help them with having it, you know, free and, you know, they may not have transport, they may not have enough money for petrol, they may be not able to take time off from a casual job to uh, take them to the clinic to get them sterilised, there's all these sorts of challenges that, you know, you and I don't face on a daily life. We can just book in and, and drive a cat to the clinic. So, I, you know, I absolutely believe the people caring for those cats want the best from them. They don't always understand the implications of a cat having kittens and 
I, you know, I clearly remember when I was in Hawaii, actually, at the ho- talking to the hotel receptionist and he's saying, oh, yeah, you know, we always had cats and they had kittens and, you know, the kittens just went off and he didn't see a problem. But then I said to him, but, you know, those kittens end up coming into shelters and they're just overwhelmed with kittens and someone has to kill them. And that has a terrible effect on people's mental health. And it was then that he realised the implication of a cat having kittens. So sometimes they do need information coupled with the opportunity to have affordable sterilisation for their cats. In your research, is it necessary that these spay-neuter costs be at free or is there a certain level where you think folks could afford to pay partially? And the reason I ask this question is, at least in the United States, we're faced with an extreme veterinary shortage. And for our high-volume, high-quality spay-neuter clinics, many of them have lost veterinarians or cannot grow their capacity to hire more veterinarians because there's a shortage Therefore, obviously, we're talking about having to pay higher salaries for the veterinarians in the clinics to be able to grow the program or maintain a program. And so there's a balancing act there in terms of the dollars serving the community, as well as being able to operate as a viable business. Do you have those kinds of challenges and any sort of analysis or figures of like, what could the community afford? Um, that's a good question, Stacey, and we are having those conversations as well. Um, and obviously, there you know there's a range of capacities to uh, pay for sterilisation services, and it depends on what the goal is too. Uh, you know, accepting cats into a government shelter or to a welfare agency, um, you know, it costs money. It costs money if you. Uh, want to try and rehome them, you've got to keep them, you've got to sterilise them, find a home for them. So uh, where you've got locations that are really contributing uh, excess cats to your shelter or municipal facility, then it can just make good financial sense to go in there with programs that that you get your virtually 100% of the cats sterilised because that will really reduce your intake. But you can offer at the same time other programs that where people do contribute something uh, or you can go in with a sequential program. So initially the vets might offer 20% off and have an advertising program, which they do here for RSPCA, um, Operation Wanted, and then go in with lower ones and then uh, for the one, the people that still haven't had their cats uh, sterilised to go in and you might you know, have to help with transport and all of that sort of thing. So I don't think there's a one answer, um, but certainly making it free, uh, we get uh, good uptake from the community. I know that Brian Cordes has been a great advocate of focusing on targeted areas. And I know you've touched upon the fact that you've looked at certain areas where they are low income, 20 to 30% are classified as low income families. Do you also overlay that with the number of cats that are getting surrendered into the shelters and using that information to try and create uh, targeted projects? Yeah, absolutely. So the Australian Community Cat Program is going in four, four states, but the main research area uh, is in Queensland, and we we chose a, a low socioeconomic suburbs. But the ones we 
chose to start the program in had the highest uh, cat intakes per thousand residents. So uh, between 20 and 25 cats per thousand residents, which is high in uh, the average for that that city of 200,000 people is generally low socioeconomic and they have uh, I think about 15 cats per thousand residents coming in as an average to the RSPCA shelter, whereas the average for the whole of Queensland is about seven and a half. So, you know, we know with 25 cats per thousand residents, they've got a cat problem. And so that's what we've started targeting. And just mentioning Brian Cordes and the neighbourhood cats, Brian and, and uh, Susie Richmond have been unbelievable in their support of our project and you know his wealth of advice is just phenomenal and in fact we have an operations meeting every two weeks and I don't think Susie they've hardly missed any for the last like year and two years or a year and a half so we you know, have to thank them a lot for uh, how we've moved forward with this project. Oh, that's great. And Brian and the Community Cats podcast, the Neighborhood Cats and the Community Cats podcast do uh, collaborate together on a trapper certification workshop. And we do a whole range of other uh, webinars all throughout the year, focusing on colony caretaking, trappers tips and tricks. But we do a monthly trapper certification webinar uh, for folks that want to learn how to trap cats in their communities efficiently, effectively, safely, calmly. If you know what you're doing, it's much better uh, for for trapping cats in the community. So it's best to learn ahead of time. I don't know about you, Dr. Rand, but if a person goes in and starts trapping cats and they don't know what they're doing, it it can cause a lot of trouble. Yes. And and that's where Brian has been so, Brian and Susie and their videos and the resources that they've got on their website is just uh, phenomenal in the courses that they run. Uh, and we couldn't have done it without their their help. It's just we are so grateful to them. And we've had help, you know, from a lot of other areas as well. I mean, you talked about the difficulty of getting vets and funding for these. And we actually, we actually uh, applied for some grants from uh, the Australian Research Council, which is a big granting body. Um, and we applied twice and, and didn't get the grant. And, and one of the reviewers said, I do not wish to see any TNR trial endorsed through the Australian Research Council. As our lead organisation responsible for setting the standards on Australian research quality, this project should not be supported. We've already lost 10% of our native mammal species and a further 20% are threatened with predation by feral cats and foxes and is identified as a principal agent of this loss. So, you know, we have those sorts of challenges and the demonisation of cats in Australia uh, that, you know, affects uh, funding, but we've been very, very grateful. The Bridget Bardot Foundation stepped up and put some funding in. The Bissell Foundation put some funding in. Brian and Susie Cordes uh, and Susie Richmond helped us with um, a little bit of funding for trap cages. So... You know, I think that where there's a will, there's a way, and certainly part of this research is to do a cost-benefit analysis, including a social benefit. And I think when, you know, I think that that's really, really important because for local governments that have to do animal control and animal management, I think if we can show 
you know, credible cost benefits from investing in stopping and it makes more sense that they'll put money into the budgets and that will then help fund these clinics. I agree with you 100 percent, you know, as an advocate for your programs, you try to find, you know, what's the angle that I need to take in order to convince the funders that, you know, this is the best way to go. And it's unfortunate that we have to do that. But, you know, in some situations in the United States, we'll say, well, it's so that we can get every cat to get a rabies vaccine. In other situations, it's to reduce the number of kittens that are found as roadkill on the roads. I mean, that's very compelling to say, you know, we don't want to see the bodies of cats and kittens on the roads. And therefore, you know, we want to reduce that number. So you have to find out what are the the phrases, the lines that are going to move the needle so that you get support from the community, from the stakeholders, you know, whatever's impacting them, whatever problem they have that you can solve, solve it, even if it is, you know, a cat on somebody's car, and you have to figure out how to prevent that cat from getting on that person's car. And that's the only thing they care about. But yet, then they'll become your supporter and help you in other ways. It's very strange how that happens. But it's the way the world works, it seems to be. So you have to learn how to be a strategic advocate, I think. Absolutely. And I think there hasn't been enough focus on the impact on the mental health of staff in shelters. I mean, it's well documented that killing animals uh, causes post-traumatic stress, increases the risk of suicide in North America, the animal rescue sector, uh, has a suicide rate that's uh, number one, along with uh, emergency responders, police and fire. Um, and that's pretty shocking. And we haven't costed that impact in. And the number of, uh, it's increasingly becoming evident to me that particularly in regional towns, a lot of veterinary practices are being asked to do local government uh work in terms of euthanizing cats and some of them have regular bookings to just take in cats and euthanize them and you know that's damaging people's lives and it's just not recognized and I think we need to do you know talk about that more uh, because we're losing veterinarians so much from the profession uh, and killing healthy and treatable animals is just awful for someone who's uh, dedicating their lives to saving them. I, I can't agree with you more from that standpoint. There are so many situations, you know, over almost 30 years that I've been involved in animal welfare where I will see or hear about certain situations. And, you know, I was, I guess I call myself being raised in an environment where luckily I did not have to push away from a euthanasia decision because we were taught to always look for other alternatives. So I was I was born and raised with trap new to return being the first option always. And so I feel lucky and blessed to be able to be in that position. But I have seen and been involved with from the sidelines with organizations where there has been a lot of euthanasia. And I've seen the wear and tear that that has done on the folks that have worked in those uh, facilities. And it is really, really brutal. And not to say that there aren't stresses and worries working in an environment where you're not euthanizing for space because there's still lives on the line. There's stresses involved. And there's a phrase called moral distress too, as well as compassion fatigue. And I think we we wear both of those hats in this industry. 
And it's just, we have a lot of work to do if we want to take care of our folks. And we want to really encourage folks to be part of helping animals rather than burning them out in two years and then having them move on to something else. Yes. And, and Stacey, that um, reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, uh, Jenny Cottrell, who is an absolutely inspiring animal management officer uh, in the city of Banyul. And she talked about sitting in the car with a little kitten. It was a pre-weaned kitten that had been found on a business, on a building site. And she was with her animal management colleague and they spent an hour sitting outside the shelter that was their service provider, calling people, begging them to take this kitten. And she couldn't find anyone to take it and they took it in and the shelter, like most shelters in those days, had a policy of just euthanizing pre-weaned kittens on entry. And she vowed to do something differently in the future and she actually got her local government to uh, put in funding for free sterilizations. And it ties back to that targeting, uh, Stacey, because uh, she came to me after several years of doing it and saying, look, we're still getting complaints from some of the areas. And we looked at her, all the suburbs contributing to her city, and then we sorted them on what's called a CFIA code, a code of um, advantage and disadvantage. So it's really, a, you know, sort of shows the level of uh, uh, socioeconomic level. And it was interesting that the three lowest suburbs had by far the highest numbers of complaint calls and calls about stray cats. And they were sometimes 10 times higher than some of the other suburbs. And then she started to do really targeted uh, sterilizations and door knocking. And she just uh, rang me quite excitedly um, a few days ago with her most recent data. And in the city of now 130,000 people, um, her total intake is going to be about 125 cats, which is less than one cat per thousand residents, and their euthanasias are, are very low. So, you know, and she's got cost figures now on the benefit to the local government for investing in that. But it's also the impact because when you lose staff, it costs you money to replace them. And those people also have um, their you know, mental health damaged as well. Yeah, that story is music to my ears. I always think of it as being like the aha moment. I had a, a situation where there were a dumpster with, you know, 30 to 35 kittens all with eyes that needed to be removed and that kind of thing. And, you know, you have these visions. And so she had a moment and I'm like, uh -uh, we're not going to see this again. You know, this is not going to happen again. We're going to do what we need to do so that this is not going to be part of our regular lives. And, you know, that one little kitten convinced her to uh, make a change and to try and rethink the situation. And so uh, next time you talk to her, please pass along my, my best regards and thank her for everything that she's doing and congratulate her on uh, a tremendously good job and well done job. And I uh, just, I love those stories. They're just fantastically great. Jackie, if folks are interested in finding out more about the research and the work that you're doing, how would they do that? Well, our website is the Australian Pet Welfare Foundation. And we've got material there on that. But if they're particularly interested in specific areas, they can also email us and the, uh, the contact details are on the website too. And we're happy to help them with uh, information if it would um, help them. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? Oh, I guess um, 
just uh, you know, many thanks to the many people who have helped and we just had a, uh, so we've got some research associated with showing that uh, we're hoping to show that the cat num free roaming cat numbers decrease over time because that's what the wildlife people want to see. And for example, last week we had people from uh, the Smithsonian Institute uh, come into a Zoom meeting to help us with advice and the uh, Humane Animal Alliance in North America. There's been so many people who have helped us, uh, Lisa Lebrecht, with uh, information on anaesthetics. It's just so many people have reached out and we've reached out to them and they've been so generous in helping share knowledge. And that's what we want to do now to help other people. And so the outcome's better for, for cats in shelters. We know that it improves the outcome for dogs in shelters and we decrease this exposure to this terrible effect on mental health of having to kill animals. So thank you, Stacey, for uh, uh, inviting me to share a little bit about what we're doing here in Australia. Dr. Rand, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on my show today, and uh, ho I hope we'll be able to have you on in the future. Thank you, Stacey. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. We love to hear what you think, and a five-star review really helps others find the show. You can also join the conversation with listeners, cat caretakers, and me on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single show. Thanks for listening, and thank you for everything that you do to help create a safe and healthy world for cats. Did you join us for Diversity Day or Fundraising Day? We'd like to take this opportunity to shout out some of our sponsors who made these online educational opportunities possible. Vets Pets. Find out how Vets Pets is keeping happiness in motion at VetsPets.com. That's V-E-T-Z-P-E-T-Z.com. And Humane Network. Learn more about their consulting services and certificate programs at HumaneNetwork.org. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the podcast or an online event like the upcoming online cat conference or online kitten conference, email stacy at communitycatspodcast.com for details. <laughs>